Welcome to the Am I Called podcast. Am I Called is a ministry that exists to help men find their call and to help pastors find called men. For more information and resources, visit amicalled.com. Now, here's your host, Dave Harvey. Morning, folks. This is Dave Harvey, and along with Stephen L. Trogi sitting in the room with me, uh, we are conducting today the Am I Called podcast, and we're real grateful that you joined us. Now, before we introduce today's guest, um, I want to let you know that we have been working for months on a huge upgrade to the amicalled.com site. Um, the site has a completely new look. It's, it's way more user-friendly than it was. It's far easier to access the resources that have been loaded on there for the last two years. And uh, also, there's been a major ref- refitting or retrofitting to the, to the assessment. And so the assessment has a new interface and these results graphics that are really cool. Part of what happened was God brought along to us a man who has, who has been served by the site, but also had these unique skills in assessment analysis. In fact, he did it for a living. And so he has helped us to analyze hundreds of assessments and from that, we not only developed the new assessment, but we also developed an online course called the Next Steps course. And uh, if you're listening to this and you haven't been to the site, please, please hop on and check it out. But now on to more important things, that, and that would be today's guest. Uh, Andy Crouch is the executive editor for Christianity Today. Andy is a musician, he is a husband, he is a father. And probably most notable, at least for this interview, is that Andy is an author. So Andy, great to have you with us. Thank you, Dave. I'm so happy to get to talk today. Now, Andy, I I was tempted to just roll the whole book on culture making into this discussion. And I want to actually do that at another time, though, because we have to get to your latest book, Strong and Weak. And one of the reasons I want to talk about this book is because it's it's now become the top book that I'm recommending to leaders wow. right now. So, I mean, two weeks ago, I had a group of guys over to my house and we're sitting around the fireplace outside and we're talking about this book. And I have purchased copies to, to get into the hands of, of other leaders. So it, it's just a very effective tool. And what I thought we could do to start out is maybe just go up to 35,000 feet and and have you talk a little bit about the vision for writing this book. You know, what hmm. what were you seeing in the church or what were you just seeing in us as em- embodied souls that made it seem like now is the time to talk about these themes? Well, that's a great question. It, it actually began with the book that came before it, which was the second book I, I wrote called uh, Playing God, Redeeming the Gift of Power, which is a... Um, fairly ambitious, I think it's fair to say, attempt to reframe the way we think about the topic of power in a biblical and Christian lens. Um, and and I'm really glad I wrote Playing God, and I think it's been helpful to some folks. Um, but it is a demanding, it was a demanding book to write, it's a demanding book to read. And after it had been out for uh, six or nine months, my editor uh, at University Press, Andy LePoe, emailed me and said, you know, do you have like a little book you could write? <laughs> like not another big, thick, uh, challenging book, as useful as such books are. But he said, Did, is there anything you kind of left on the cutting room floor, or, you know, just couldn't quite fit into playing God that you'd like to expand, but not necessarily at 
at such great length in a more accessible way. And I did have something. In fact, I had the thing, the idea that if I, if it had been available to me, if I'd figured it out when I was actually writing playing God, I think that would have been a much better book. Uh, and so I wrote him back and I said, you know, I happen to have, I I've been speaking about this, uh, material on power and what, how do we think about power as Christians? And I've, I've stumbled across this way of thinking about actually not just power, but a flourishing life in general, um, that I think could be really helpful. And that's where strong week came from. And, and the other thing I'm so, um, glad to hear and honored to hear that this is helping you as you mentor and, and work with other leaders, because, uh, as you know, towards the end of, of the book, strong and weak, I really turn to the topic of leadership and I feel like we need some new language for leadership that does more justice to some parts of the experience of leadership that we don't talk about very much. And that's what I try to do in Strong and Weak. And and the way you tried to do it, uh, showing up in the very beginning, is that you have this, this uh, two-by-two chart right. that appears really throughout the whole book as a way to grasp what you're calling the, the paradox of flourishing. And so, so there are two lines, I mean, just for our listeners, there are two lines, uh, one runs horizontal, one runs vertical, and that creates, of course, four different quadrants. Uh, in fact, when we post this, this podcast, we'll try to post the diagram as well, so you'll have that for the listeners. It's not great for podcast or radio. I have no, to no, it isn't. <laughs> <laughs> but we'll make do because you, you seem to be able to bring these things to life. Um, in fact, I'm going to put it on you. Why don't you talk about the quadrants and the lines and just give us an overview of how how the chart works. Yeah. So the basic idea is you're, we're going to build a two by two here of, of two things that we often don't think go together. And that's really what a paradox is. It's It's two true things that are true at the same time that we often think can't be true at the same time. And this particular paradox is authority and vulnerability. So the vertical line on that chart uh, ends up being authority, which I would define as capacity for meaningful action. When you have authority, you can actually act in a way that makes a difference in the world or in some part of the world. And then vulnerability is the horizontal line, and that's exposure to meaningful risk. When you are vulnerable, something that you care about and that matters deeply to you is at stake in some way and could be lost. Um, and so this gives us, you know, four options. You can have both, you can have neither, you can have one without the other. And those are the four corners. And the, the place you want to be, this is the argument of the book, Strong and Weak, the place you want to be is up and to the right, which is high authority and high vulnerability. And we often think these two things are opposites. Like if I have authority, I won't be vulnerable. Or if I'm vulnerable, that means I don't have authority. But actually it turns out they're not opposites. They can go together. And when they go together, and I love to pose this question to people and ask, you know, when is a time in your life when you really felt you were flourishing in some way that you felt really alive, you felt very engaged, you felt honored, you felt known, loved, uh, that you had opportunity. And hopefully many of us have had at least moments in our lives where we felt that. And I can almost guarantee if you dig down into that moment or that experience, what you find is that you were being given authority and you were taking a risk, you were actually vulnerable at the same time. And all of our best experiences in life are up and to the right on this little chart, high authority, high vulnerability. Now, the way I, I, I see you portraying that, what, part of what I loved about, about how you presented it was that you, you held that intention. And mm. so you said that for, for a, a leader or a person to flourish, 
that they have to embrace not only the vulnerability, but that that, that vulnerability can't stand alone as a value. It's got to be held in tension by something else. And you used authority. Um, yes. So, so what exactly does that mean? Can you unpack that a little bit more and maybe even illustrate it if, if possible? Yes, for sure. Well, I decided to actually start the book by talking about, I think, one of the most uh, vivid human experiences of this, which is parenting. And not, not everyone is a parent, but everyone had a parent. And uh, many of us play that role. Uh, we, we're involved in you know, children's lives as parents or as uh, you know, uh, uncles and aunts or whatever. And when you have that kind of relationship with a child, it's very easy to see. And from the child's point of view, it's very easy to see that the parent has authority. And it's important for parents to have authority, right? Um, in fact, parents who try to deny that they have authority actually miss out on the real value and uh, the most valuable role they play in their child's life, which is to provide structure and provide a certain kind of accountability and direction and limits. Um, but when you become a parent, you realize this is simultaneously the most vulnerable experience you'll ever have. That is, more is at stake uh, of yourself, of your heart, of your hopes and uh, fears, right? Then than almost anything I can imagine doing. And so uh, healthy parenting is high authority and high vulnerability at the same time. So by vulnerability, by the way, I think it's important to say, I don't just mean emotional openness or emotional transparency. I think that's how that word is often used now. And there are definitely times when it's very healthy to be emotionally open um, or to disclose, you know, pain or, or you know, whatever, uh, painful secrets even. Um, but that's not really what I'm talking about here. I'm talking about any time when something you care about is at risk. And, and that can definitely happen without being especially emotionally transparent. Um, and in fact, sometimes I think being emotionally transparent is actually a form of power um, and unaccountable power. It's kind of a, it can be manipulative. So I'm not just talking about emotional openness, though that could be part of it. But any time something you care about is at risk. And I would say this is true of all leadership. That is all real leadership. I've got to have something at stake. Something has to really matter to me. And I can't know for sure that I'm going to be able to hold on to it or else it's not. I don't think it's really leadership. Um, and I'm sure we'll want to talk about this a little more as we go here. But, but you know, one uh, outcome of this for me for leaders is we often think that what it is to be a leader is to gain authority. And we pay a lot of attention to gaining and maximizing our authority. Could it be that actually equally important to leadership is the acquiring and stewarding of vulnerability, that it's just as important that we figure out what are the places where I really need to put myself at risk and even put my organization at risk for all of us to flourish. And in a way, I think in a deeper way than it is about authority, I think uh, leadership is most deeply about the stewarding of vulnerability. Andy, can I ask you a question? One of the things that I'm thinking as you're, I'm just trying to wrap my mind around because I've read some different things about vulnerability and you're, you're presenting an interesting, <clears throat> interesting definition, which is a little different than what you said. The standard way it gets used is emotional openness. What does right. it look like in terms of practical action? Like what do you envision a leader doing to demonstrate this vulnerability? Because, it, you know, it, it could just be right. taken as, well, I'm just going to go into high risk situations that matter to me. Right. Um, what does it actually look like for a leader to be both authoritative and vulnerable in terms of like actually doing things? Hmm. Well, let's see a couple, a couple thoughts. One is for leaders, um, 
one of the most important forms of vulnerability is actually accountability. That is to say, someone else is authorized, has actually authority to evaluate my um, stewardship, my performance. And uh, when you look at people who are unhealthy leaders, one of the symptoms you always find is that there's no one who actually is authorized to hold them accountable for what they say they'll do and for doing it with integrity and so forth. Um, this is why every business needs an accountant. The accountant is rarely the most, um, you know, loved person on the team. <laughs> it's like, oh, good, the accountant's coming. Awesome. Party. <laughs> but but accounting is accountability. And for an organization, and specifically an organization's leaders, that is actually vulnerable. Now, no, you know, no accountant is going to even care whether you're emotionally open with him or her, right? I mean, they, and most accountants, really, that's not necessarily their strong suit. But they are actually a source of, of, of appropriate vulnerability for the leaders. That is, they have the authorization to say, show me the audit trail for that. Uh, explain that decision. You know, is that within your budget? Um, so that's one example. Now, I think another example is that there are many forms of risks that, that any community has to take to be healthy. Um, this can be confronting... Um, uh, dis-ease, confronting, I mean, in the Christian world, we would just call it sin, confronting uh, disobedience, confronting failures of love. And it's always a temptation as a leader to find some end run around actually naming what's happening in, in the organizational system you're responsible for. Um, so that can, there's, there's times when it's highly risky, uh, especially if the person or persons who are causing the unhealth have a certain amount of power in the system, it's very risky to open that up to the right kind of public accountability. But that's actually a very important part of the leader's job. Um, you know, I think about, I think about uh, the, the incredible value for youth ministry of um, what we sometimes call mission trips. I would much rather call them pilgrimages, because I think that's actually the ancient Christian word for it, where we take kids often from relatively sheltered or homogenous environments into relatively risky, relatively different kinds of environments, whether it's across the city or across the world. And we just consistently see that that uh, when done properly, these kinds of uh, short-term trips, as short as they are, as, as contained as they are, they also introduce a level of vulnerability into the traveler's lives, adults and kids alike, that is spiritually transformative. And it's part of my job as a leader to figure out what's the risky thing I'm going to take the people I lead into. And I'm, I'm of course, going to go with them, and I'm going to be vulnerable in going with them. We're going to leave the system, say the church building, where I have a lot of power, and we're going to go to another part of my town where my skin doesn't, my skin color doesn't give me a lot of power, where I don't know the ropes or the rules, but we're going to go through this risky experience together. And often those are the most transformative things that happen in people's lives. I hope that helps. <laughs> yes, it does help. Uh, and, and it's well illustrated. Um, you know, I'm, I'm thinking, Andy, that one of the things I, I remember you saying at the beginning of the book or somewhere up front was that you used to think that our deepest fear was vulnerability, you know, uh -huh. that idea of our weakness. And, and I think, um, you know, I was born in 1960, so I was a boomer. And I think for my generation and my generation of leaders in particular, that was the deepest fear. Huh. And, uh, and then you go on to say, but you, you realized and you came to see that people fear 
authority as well. Um, totally. So, and Stephen's sitting here, and he's he's a next generation guy, and I think his generation, Stephen, you can comment on this, but but they, you know, they feared authority, and so you you do have this generational thing in play. But part of what you're saying in the book is is that yeah, you thought it was one, but then you're seeing mm. it's it's both. So what what were you hearing and seeing? that made you understand our our fears that way? Well, I think what you just said, I think is very powerful and, uh, and right. I do think there is a generational cohort difference here that there's something about, uh, you know, so-called Gen X, my cohort, because um, I'm eight years younger than you, and I do think there is some weird but definable difference between the experience of folks born even just eight years apart. There's something that happened. Uh, we could have a whole other podcast on what that was um, that made Gen X incredibly averse to authority and particularly positions of authority, position, positional power. Um, and I mean, you look at the fact that, that uh, how, how, how scarce uh, at the level of national leadership, how scarce uh, the Gen X uh, cohort, you know, people roughly say from their mid 30s to their upper 40s now, how scarce they are in national political leadership. So that, you know, this in 2016, we had two uh, folks over the age of 70 who ended up as the two presidential nominees. And there are so few in the Gen X range who are sort of stepping forward for authority. Now, and I would say we were, on the other hand, really into vulnerability, especially as young adults. Um, and that was a huge value for me as a young adult. And I, and I did think of it mostly in terms of emotional transparency, because I didn't realize there were other actually more challenging forms of vulnerability. I mean, for example, here's something that's vulnerable. Commitment is vulnerable. Right. So uh, I would say when I said to my wife uh, or my my about to be wife uh, on the altar, standing on in the front of our church, uh, I, Andrew, take you, Catherine, to be my uh, wedded wife, to have and to hold from this day forward for better, for worse, for richer, for poor in sickness and health until we are parted by death. This is my solemn vow. That's vulnerable. Like that is a massive risk. More for her than for me, it turns out. <laughs> um, it was, uh, I got the better part of the bargain, but, but for both of us, right? Now, it was also in some ways the most authoritative thing I ever did, right? The most meaningful action of my life was making that vow. But, but you look at this kind of widespread fear of commitment uh, in our, in our world. And you realize you can, you know, so Helena Dunham, I mean, shows up on screen naked all the time and she doesn't have a conventionally beautiful body that people necessarily want to see naked. And people are like, Oh, that's so vulnerable. But what she represents is a total uh, fear of and withdrawal from commitment. And so in a much deeper sense, she's actually not vulnerable at all or what she's representing and the character that she plays and the kind of world that it evokes. It's just, uh, a, is, it's a currency to purchase a following. It is. It's, it's actually a source of authority. Right. That that sort of openness, that transparency actually gives you a kind of power. And I might use power in this context, at least as kind of authority without vulnerability. That is, you're in control. You're able to set the terms. Um, but the truth is, we need both. And I realize and part of my journey as a you know Gen X person is realizing I have got to be willing to take on authority, because if I do not do that, other people don't flourish. Um, it's just as true when you think about those experiences of flourishing in your, in your own history, 
it's not just the case that you had authority and vulnerability in those times. It's almost always the case. Whenever I spend time with people and drill down into this, we realize someone else actually had authority in their lives at that point. And when you withdraw from authority, you actually withdraw from the ability to create the conditions where other people flourish. And this is where we can't afford to get this wrong because we can think, well, I don't want power because people are corrupted by power and they mess it up. Um, but what we don't realize is when you withdraw in that way, you actually are forfeiting the calling, I think, on every human being made in the image of God to create environments for others to flourish. And you can't do that with authority, but you need to do it ideally with authority and vulnerability together at the same time. One of the phrases you, you used in the book that I really loved was uh, visible authority and hidden mm. vulnerability. And, yes. uh, and, and actually, uh, you used an illustration, which I thought was really helpful. I think you talked about President Obama uh, getting his morning briefings where he's being he's being exposed to like the worst things that are going on in the world right now. <laughs> you know that I mean, you begin to understand why the head of the president goes <laughs> gray very quickly. <laughs> Yeah. And yet he's unable to share that with anybody, probably even even his wife. And so he has these, you know, this hidden vulnerabilities, these burdens that he carries um, yes. w while he's still representing of and, and acting in a visible authority. Yes. And I, I call this in the book, and I, I think this is the most important chapter in the book in many ways. I call it the drama of leadership, which is hidden vulnerability. The drama of leadership is that everybody sees your authority that's visible. But what they don't see and actually can't ever fully see is the full spectrum of risks that you are aware of, both your own internal um, vulnerabilities, weak sides, shadow sides, pain, uh, whatever, conflicts, and the ones you bear on behalf of the community you lead. And you can't disclose them, uh, sometimes for very basic confidentiality reasons, and sometimes for very complex reasons. And sometimes they're just things that only the leader is in a position to really grasp how vulnerable the system is. And you can't even transfer that to others. And and how you bear that, I think, is the test of whether you end up thriving in leadership and others thrive with you in leadership, or whether you become actually a very dangerous, broken leader. And a lot of people don't find a way to bear this in a healthy way. I wanted to, uh, to turn to a page in the book where where you actually took this whole concept of vulnerability and, and located it at the heart of the gospel. And I just thought it was so powerful that I, I wanted to read it so that our listeners could enjoy it as well. So if you have the book, folks, it's on page 45 at the bottom. And it begins, I have come to believe that the image of God is not just evident in our authority over creation, it is also evident in our vulnerability in the midst of creation. The Psalms speaks of authority and vulnerability in the same breath, because this is what it means to bear the image of God. When the true image bearer came, the image of the invisible God, Colossians 1, he came with unparalleled authority, more capacity for meaningful action than any other person who ever lived. His actions all took their place within the story of Israel, the greatest of all shared histories, and they decisively changed the path of history and created a new and different shared future. And yet he, too, was born naked, as dependent and therefore vulnerable as any human being, 
And though the Western artistic tradition has placed loincloths over the uncomfortable truth of the crucifixion, he died naked as well. He died exposed to the possibility of loss, not just of human life, but of his very identity as a divine son with whom the Father was well pleased. He was laid in the dust of death, the final and full expression of lost. And in all of this, he was not just very man, but very God. That's a wonderful picture um, because I think it takes us right to the heart of what informs what I think is, is the most foundational biblical uh, idea behind vulnerability. And it's not just that it's a good leadership technique. It's not that, it's, it's not that we're image bearer, bearers and therefore we just need to show other people what's, what our image really is all about, but it's that we, we behold the Son the savior and uh well you wrote it <laughs> so i'm <laughs> well no no but you're you're elaborating on it so that's so profound it's, uh, it's so it's important this isn't yeah <clears throat> this is not just a technique right or, or you know a, a way to get good things to happen like it's rooted in the very uh, in the mysterious truth of who god actually always was um that God was always willing to take this much risk. Um, and risk is not something we readily attribute to God for some good reasons, because God is not in time the way we are, and God is not a creature the way we are. And yet there's something that if if God was to be truly known, God had to become a baby, <laughs> at least if God was to be known by us. Um, and God can be truthfully known by us only in that vulnerability. And it's even in the in the Hebrew Bible which is the great text of God's otherness and God's sovereignty and holiness and, you know, monotheism. Even there, God expresses frustration. He expresses pain. He expresses grief. He, he's described, at least, I, I know there's theological challenges with this, as changing his mind. And all of this suggests that, that it's not enough for us to imagine God just as authority. We somehow have to realize to fully know God, at least as his creatures, we have to know him in his willingness to assume our vulnerability. It's just astonishing. Like, who would make this up? <laughs> no yeah, one make, would make this up. It makes me think of the uh, of the John passage, John John one, where um, huh. where Jesus says, uh, or, or or John says, no, no one has ever seen God, the only God, who is at the Father's side. He has made him known. And you know the, uh, the the preachers talk about how that the Greek word there is uh, the word we have for ex- exegete, and uh, and so the 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 son has exegeted the father, but but in the son in the incarnation we have we have the self disclosure of God, we've God moving toward us and opening up, and uh, you know and and embodying the very thing we're talking about here when when we talk about transparency. And, you know, the, the context for, for this book, Strong Week, was, as I said at the beginning, this kind of bigger book, Playing God. And, and in that book, I talk quite a bit more than I do directly in Strong Week about idols, which are all the false gods that, that promise us a kind of power. And the one thing an idol will never tell you is that you have to be vulnerable. Because <laughs> what all idols image, the reason they're idols, that is false images, is that they image a god who doesn't really exist. And, and that's a god of what I would call control, um, which is 
up into the left in the little graph, it's authority without vulnerability. And every idol images this ultimate reality, purported ultimate reality, that is said to be, you know, this is what God is like. God's in control. And if you just worship this idol, you can be in control as well. And it just turns out that is a total falsification. That was never what God was actually like. And I think that's why God hates idols, is they do not disclose the truth. And only the image bearer, only the true image shows you this is actually what the ultimate reality is like. It's both incredibly authoritative, nothing lacking in any way of authority, and at the same time, incredibly open to his own creation. And even in the act of creating, willing to take on risk. It's amazing. Andy, one of the phrases that you used in the book was descending to the dead. And uh, I'd like to get you to unpack that a little bit and, and to think about it specifically in terms of what it means for a leader. You know, what, what does it look like? So, so let's def- why don't you define it and talk about how you use it in the book and then, and then talk about what does it look like for a leader to either experience it or apply it. Hmm. Well, the phrase, of course, comes from one version of the Apostles' Creed um, that includes includes the early Christian belief that uh, seems to be backed up in some way by uh, by Peter um, that Jesus, after being crucified, actually descended to the realm of of the dead and preached to the spirits in prison. Whatever exactly that means, it's this reminder that um, that Jesus went to, you know, not just to the cross, but to the grave. (laughs) And we have Saturday interposed between Friday and Sunday. And uh, I think it gets to a very deep mystery, which is that there is something about leadership and bearing the image of God as a leader that sometimes requires us actually to give up all authority, which is what I take Jesus to have done in one sense. Now, uh, I think even in the dust of death, he was held in relationship to the father in some way, but still from an earthly point of view, (laughs) he gave up everything. And this is not what we usually think leaders are meant to do. In fact, Ronald Heifetz is a a very perceptive scholar of leadership, teaches at the Kennedy school at Harvard. And he says the first job of a leader, the number one job of a leader is to avoid assassination (laughs) Mm. Uh, because, (laughs) you know, leaders are meant to take their communities into vulnerable places. That's flourishing, but communities don't want to be vulnerable. So one option the community always has is decide, well, we'll just eject this leader more or Mm -hmm. less violently. And Heifetz says, well, once that happens, you're of no use. So you have to operate as a leader in a way that prevents the community from expelling you. Um, And probably every pastor knows that feeling all too well. Um, Which which means that there's always a political dimension to leadership in a fallen world, right? I, and I, I think Heifetz is right. And, um, or like he's 90% right. Yeah, absolutely. We've got to be uh, careful. And one of my friends, Scott Cormode, paraphrases, I think, Heifetz and says, the job of a leader is to fail pe- uh, fail people's expectations at a rate that they can stand. <laughs> so you're always asking, you know, okay, these folks have one set of expectations, but that's, I know I can't do that. I know it wouldn't be good if I did that. So how do I do that in a way that I don't get assassinated, right? So that's legitimate. But Jesus didn't exactly operate that way because he actually set his face to Jerusalem, headed toward the place where he would be systematically stripped of all apparent authority. Um, And there's this mystery that I think sometimes we have to do that too. Um, There are times when the only deeply enough redemptive action 
in a position of power is actually to give up your power in very dramatic ways. Um, and this, you know, it takes many different forms. Um, uh, I think, you know, this is one time when I think there are moments when emotional openness is actually incredibly risky or very destabilizing. I think, uh, and you're still called to do it. I think confession is another time. I don't think it's my job as a leader is not to get up every Sunday and, and catalog my sins from the past week. That is not helpful uh, in my priestly role, right? If I'm a leader of a church. But there are times when um, the only way through the consequences of my own sin is to be unbelievably transparent in in ways that I don't even ask anyone else in the congregation to do if I'm a pastor. Um and, and I think the reason this is necessary is that when we are willing to do that, those of us who have been entrusted with power are willing to just empty ourselves in the language of Philippians 2, obviously, um, to empty ourselves in that way, it actually breaks the power of idols because the idol says that's the one thing you never want to do is give up control. And when leaders at the right time are willing to radically give up control and it's, it's hard to generalize when that is or how that is. But at the right time, I think many great leaders do this. And, and that's actually some of the most transformative things we ever do, even when we're at our absolute weakest. Yeah, it puts, it puts in mind for me some of the difficulties that take place when organizations, corporations, ministries look to transition to the next generation Yes. And how often the ball is fumbled right there because the the leader has not prepared himself or herself wow. for, for a moment where they have to empty themselves. Wow. Oh, I think that's very, very profound. <laughs> and we have uh, American evangelicalism, which is the tradition I think you and I share to some extent, has this problem almost worse than any other because we, we're not good at building institutions that are bigger than any individual we put a lot of stock in, in that individual, but it be, it's so rare to find someone who, as they reach like the natural transition point, whether it's their own retirement or whether it's just a season of ministry that, that really is, it's time for it to come to an end. So rare that they are willing to just lay down, really lay down control and entrust it to someone else. And even when they turn over the ostensible power of the title, they retain the kind of back backstage control, <laughs> which in some ways is even worse. Um, yeah, so I think we, in a way, like uh, my job, I think, as a person who has any kind of authority is in my in my intimate relationships in my with my family, with my deepest friends, with my confessors, my spiritual directors, you know, whatever language you use, to be daily dying to myself so that one day I can publicly die and it will actually be redemptive rather than damaging for the communities that I lead. Um, and many of us neglect that for understandable reasons, but but we're really neglecting our final contribution to others flourishing will be our ability to lay down power and say, God is still good even when I don't, when I don't have obvious power. Mm. That's very helpful. Um, Andy, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to make this my, my last question, uh, but take as much time as you'd like. I, I was just interested in, in hearing you reflect a bit on, on one or two defining moments in, in your life 
where the, the, the paradoxes or the paradox that you're talking about in the book, the tensions that you're talking about in the book, hmm. where those really came into focus for you and marked you in hmm. some way? Well, two, two things come to mind. Um, one was an experience of, uh, of great flourishing, which ended in failure, uh, at least as the world counts it, um, which was taking over a, a little magazine that probably most folks haven't heard of, but uh, we published it from 1998 to 2003. It was called Regeneration. And it was, it was just a, an attempt to publish something really excellent uh, by people of faith about faith and culture. And uh, I had the chance with a few friends to take over this little fledgling magazine that another group of friends had started. And I became editor in chief, which was this very exalted title for uh, a job that was done out of a 77 square foot office or sort of corner of my little apartment. (laughs) Um, But it was this incredible experience of being handed kind of a vision and a little bit of resources and then asked to try to multiply it and grow it. And, uh, you know, that was my kind of entry into writing, really. I'd been a campus minister for 10 years, but I transitioned into this more journalistic role. Uh, and it was, it was just a marvelous experience of flourishing. And we never figured out how to make it work as a business because it turns out magazines are like the worst business, except for restaurants. Magazines and restaurants are basically the worst businesses on the planet, just from a structural point of view. And so we raised a lot of money from investors, uh, not for profit, so philanthropic kind of investments. And in 2003, we realized we couldn't keep it going and we had to shut it down. And for a year after that, I I had no job. Um, At that same time, my my wife got a job in a different city in Philadelphia. We moved from Boston, where I'd lived my whole life, where I had all these networks and connections and sense of authority and sense of significance and this place I just have always loved, always will love, probably most of any place in the world. And, and literally in the span of a month, um, I went from being editor-in-chief of Regeneration, <laughs> living in Cambridge, Massachusetts, to spouse of Catherine Crouch <laughs> uh, uh, in Philadelphia, where I knew not a soul. I mean, really. Uh, and, uh, you know, I would say both, of the, both sides of that experience were among the best things in my life, both the, the joy of doing it and then the, the failure, even though it was very painful the one thing that was not painful about it was I knew we had been obedient to God. I knew we'd tried to do it in a way that honored God and that preserved relationships. And one of the beautiful things is often when these things fail, relationships fracture kind of inevitably. Thankfully, almost without exception, that didn't happen. And actually, the people I worked with in that season are still some of my very best friends, and we get to do other things together. But that failure, you know, at age 30, whatever I was, 35 or something like that, was was very um, formative <laughs> and really important. And without that failure, I would not have taken the next big risk of my life, which was to start writing my first book, which was called Culture Making. Um, and that book kind of emerged out of this barren ground and, and in some ways barren place. I mean, or at least uncultivated place that we lived in, this new place we lived in. Um and yet that ended up being really creative work. Um, so I think, you know, that was such an important experience on both sides. And just one other thing I'll mention, uh, just because it's so odd that it's happened every time. And I almost think it's it, God's got to be in it in some way. I've, I've written four books now, Culture Making, and then these two more. And I have another one coming out in the spring. And the really odd thing is that when I have turned in each of those books, which is a moment of great triumph for an author, and you feel like, oh, finally 
turned in something worthwhile. At least I've felt good at about every manuscript I've turned in. Um, and you're waiting for it to be published, uh, which is the best time to be the author. Cause once it's actually published, it's a real letdown because <laughs> you know, people are never as excited about it as you are. Uh, but boy, those, that time after you've turned it in is like this delicious sort of sense of authority and accomplishment and so forth. And, and the four times I've done that have been the four times when I've run into just odd, like, uh, debilitating health issues. I got sciatica out of the blue in 2008 when culture making was turned in. Uh, this last, I just turned in a manuscript in, in October and for a month I had this TMJ jaw thing where I couldn't even close my jaw for three weeks. Um, and every time there's been this physical debilitation that has come right on the heels of this great kind of, uh, you know, a kind of success. And I just have got to believe it hasn't been a lot of fun. And thankfully, I'm, I'm better now from this most recent thing. Um, but it's been so humbling. And I just have to thank God somehow is permitting that to um, keep me from becoming elated, <laughs> as Paul says, and becoming distorted in my authority. Um, and it just is a, an odd reality of my life, this vulnerability that's come along with these moments of great uh, success. Well, if you have a book coming out next fall, that means we need to send you flowers now, right? Because you just turned it in. <laughs> it's yeah, it'll be out in the spring. Yeah, a book about technology and family life—a different kind of topic, but uh, okay. it's yeah, it's going to be fun to have it out in the world. And uh, flowers anytime, but they go to my wife because she's the one who puts up with all this. <laughs> what's the, what's the name of the book, Andy? The next book is called The TechWise Family, Everyday Steps for Putting Technology in Its Proper Place. So it's how to keep technology from <laughs> messing okay. up. Uh, and who's publishing it? Like. With Baker and in collaboration with the Barna Group, who did some really great original research about families and technology right now. Well, I'm delighted to hear that you're continuing to write because I, I sure have been edified by reading a couple of books of yours that I've, that I've read, particularly this one, Strong and Weak. So Andy, thank you so much for for joining us today on the Am I Called podcast. Dave, it's been an honor. Thank you very, very much. Stephen, great. Thanks for you joining me as well. It's always nice to have you as part of the conversation. Absolutely. Folks, this is the Am I Called podcast, and this podcast is actually part of a broader platform of resources and material that's available to you. It's all free of charge, uh, and it's all at the new amicalled.com. If you want to hear more podcasts with folks like Russ Moore or Paul Tripp or Randy Alcorn or Ed Welch and a host of other folks. Uh, just go to the site, go to amicall.com and, uh, and check it out. And thanks for joining us today.